All right, Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we're going to look at the entire chapter. So please give your attention as God's word is read. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When Adam, or sorry, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son or begat a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters, Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There you go, thus far the reading of God's word. So I thought people thought I waited a long time to have kids, 27 years. Here's like 187 years. Then he, it's like, what are you doing for 187 years? It's probably dad's like, get out of the house. <laughs> so here you have it, Genesis chapter 5. It's a genealogy. Um, just a little bit of recap of Genesis chapter 4. Um, Really, from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 4 is kind of one section. Um, you can title it, The Generations of the Heavens and the Earth, because that's how the Bible uh, entitles it in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And what you have there is a chronicle of the early period of the earth uh, after it was created, and the population of the earth with the first uh, few humans that were uh, created and made and, and so on. You have the chronicle of the fall. You have the chronicle of the first murder uh, with Cain and Abel. And then you have uh, the judgment on Cain and his line. Uh, chapter 4 ends with the genealogy, if you will, of Cain. Um, just some, you know, just you know, briefly thinking about what we looked at last time in chapter 4. We, you know, you have the two sons, and you have this offering that was made, and you know you, the story goes, uh, Cain's offering was rejected, while Abel's was not. And we talked a little bit about that, but what you have here is a notion of how sin attacks uh, a fallen individual, because Cain, like his mother Eve, sinned 
before he actually slew Abel, his brother. Uh, that's why God warns him. He says, why is your face fallen? He says, do you not know that sin is crouching at the door? And it, it wants to have you. It wants you. Uh, but you need, to, you need to rule over it. You need to master it. And Cain obviously did not master it because the next verse talks about how he lures his brother out into the wilderness and kills him. Um, premeditated murder. And God, of course, shows Cain some grace. Uh, he doesn't immediately punish him for his death, but he casts him out and puts a mark on him lest anyone should uh, mess with Cain. And then, like I said, in verses 17 through 24, you get uh, a bit of a genealogy there. Cain's uh, line is um, explored for seven generations, okay? Seven generations after Cain. And what you see in this genealogy at the end of chapter 4 is a rapid descent into sin, right? Cain, who murders his brother, the genealogy ends seven generations later with Lamech, who then not only boasts about how he murdered someone for striking him, but you know he, he's kind of haughty and arrogant about it. So this descent into sin as, as you know, the fall is taking its effect on human beings and how sin is just sort of permeating everything about human culture. You also see the rise of, of uh, civilization and industry as um, early on uh, you see uh, it's the sons of Lamech, right? He has three sons who... Uh, one is a uh, one who uh, dwells in tents and keeps livestock. Another one who um, begins like music and plays instruments, and, and then another one who is a bit of a, uh, a metallurgist, if you will, uh, forging instruments of bronze and iron. Uh, so even within this descent to sin, you see the development of civilization, the development of technology. Again, God's common grace. How even sinful man can can still function in this world, how they could still do things in this world, yet, as we will see eventually, sin takes the technological advances that we make and then often uses them for evil. Um, and, and we'll see that as, as the story progresses. But that genealogy ends chapter 4, and I only mention it because we're going we're gonna to compare and contrast the genealogy of Cain with what you see in chapter 5, which is the genealogy of Seth. And that's what we see here going into this next story, this next part of the story, I should say, as we head into Genesis 5. Because Genesis 5, verse 1, going all the way up to Genesis 6, verse 8, is another section of the story that is marked off by this toledote that we've been kind of noting here, where in chapter 5, verse 1, you see this is the book of the generations. You'll see this again in chapter 6, verse 9. Now, these are the generations of Noah. So that's going to mark another new section of the story. So what this section really does is it takes us from Adam to Noah. And it's going to show us how not only do you see the, the line of Seth traversed from him all the way to Noah, but you're also going to see how sin grows and how sin fills this earth. Whereas the earth was meant to be filled with the image of God, it's now being filled with sin, debauchery, all kinds of evil and wickedness to the point where it's going to end in judgment. God is going to judge the world for the sin that has filled it in a, relatively speaking, short period of time. So that's what we're going to see. But this story here, we're going to just look at chapter 5. We'll look at uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, Lord willing, next time. But what we're going to see in these verses here is the story from Adam to Noah, how it shows us the legacy of the fall, but also provides a glimmer of hope that will be fulfilled in Christ. And that glimmer of hope, of course, is Noah, who is, um, as his father pro uh, proclaims when he is born, he, he believes that this is one who shall bring us relief or rest from the painful toil of our hands. And in a sense, Noah does do that, but he doesn't do it in a, in a 
in a consummate kind of way or in a fulfilling kind of way, but it is a, it is a kind of a type and picture that points to the kind of rest that we will have in Christ who does provide us true rest. But we're going to look at this, uh, I think I have it in, what is it, four parts here. Uh, the first part we're going to see here in verses 1 through 5 is a broken image. A broken image. Again, uh, the passage begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So again, this is kind of recapitulating what we saw in chapter 1, what we saw in chapter 2, how God created man in his image. To, and when we looked at that, that image essentially means that he was created in righteousness and true holiness. And in righteousness and true holiness. Adam was created upright. He was created sinless. He was created in a way to reflect God in his moral character. And he was created with the law written on his heart and the ability to keep it. So he was created in the likeness of God, male and female. And we, it's not just Adam who's in the likeness of God, man and woman. Adam and Eve both are in the likeness of God. And God blesses them. And again, this is just pulling this right out of cha- uh, chapter 1. So it's recapitulating this. So God blesses them and names them man, or Adam, which is a generic form of man. And now we see in verse 3 here, well, before I go on, move on. So this next part of the story, like I said, it's a genealogy, and it chronicles the story of Adam to the time of the flood. And whereas, like in chapters 2, 3, and 4, the narrative sort of progresses in a normal narrative fashion, chapter 5 sort of speeds this narrative up a little bit as we are kind of fast-forwarding through 10 generations of people here to get from Adam to Noah. And then the story is going to slow down again when Noah comes on the scene. So we're going to see, you know, we're going to just, we're going to be zipping through these generations. Not much is said about these people. The only things, you know, the only time there's any kind of break from the pattern of this genealogy is at the beginning, is in the middle when it talks about Enoch, and at the end when it talks about Lamech. Otherwise, the pattern follows the same thing uh, throughout the whole thing. We'll look at that in a moment. But again, the story of these generations of Adam, and, and these are his, this is his progeny, this is his, these are his ancestors, or his descendants, I should say, um, is told through genealogy. And more importantly, what we're seeing here, this is the line of promise that is uh, when, when God made the promise of the seed of the woman. This is tracing now the line of promise from Adam all the way to Noah, who will be uh, in that line of promise. We see this. This is something you see, a feature that is all throughout the book of Genesis. You're going to see oftentimes two sons, and the line of promise is going to go through one and not the other. In this case, it went through Seth, not Cain. Eventually, when Abram comes on the scene, well, actually, when Noah comes on the scene, it's going to go through Shem, not Ham or Japheth, right? When, when Abram comes on the scene, it's going to go through his son Isaac, not Ishmael. It's going to go through uh, Esau or Jacob, not Esau. It's going to go through, you know, so you've got all these, these things. A couple of sons are born oftentimes, and the line of promise goes through one and not the other. But another interesting thing here, too, is I only mention this because it was kind of interesting. Uh, I can't prove it one way or the other. But there's a little bit of a difference in the language in chapter 5, verse 1, than you see like in chapter 6, verse 9, or chapter 2, verse 4, where those say these are the generations. This one says this is the book of the generations. So this is the, the Sefer Toledo, the book of the generations. And um, there's speculation, perhaps these generations, these genealogies were preserved on some tablets or something that were somehow passed down. Not quite sure, don't really know, um, but uh, it's just a, an interesting note uh, because of the slight difference in the language there. But again, we're briefly told, again, the story of Adam, its creation in verses 1 through 2, how he was created in God's likeness and how he was created male and female and how they were blessed by God. But however, we know because of the fall in Genesis 3, that image is broken. That image is broken. And this is where I wanted to keep the, the hymnal handy. Uh, in the back, 
in Heidelberg, Lord's Day 3. So that's found on page 863 in the back. Questions 6, 7, and 8. It talks about man's misery. So we know that the image of God is broken in man, and Heidelberg kind of brings this out quite nicely in questions, <coughs> excuse me, in questions 6, 7, and 8 on page 863. So first it asks, did God create man thus wicked and perverse? No. But God created man good and after his own image, that is in righteousness and true holiness, <coughs> excuse me, that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. So, again, question six is just talking about how in the, in the beginning, in the original creation, God created man righteous with true holiness in his image, able to keep the law, able to love God, also able to fall. He was able to sin, able not to sin. So then it goes on to ask in question seven, for when, from where then does this depraved nature of man come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, whereby our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. And that's what we're going to see in the story of Genesis as we go forward. Because of what Adam and Eve did, or failed to do, I should say, in the garden, you're going to see this corrupt nature now infiltrate and infect the human race. We saw it last time in Genesis 4, where Cain picks up a stone and slays his brother because he was not, you know, because he had a sacrifice that God didn't like and God liked his brother's sacrifice. I mean, it sounds silly when you say that, but I'm sure Cain in his mind was like, you know, I mean, sin was crouching at his door, you know, waiting to consume him, and God warned him about that. And then question eight, but are we so depraved that we are completely incapable of any good and prone to all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And we're going to see that in Genesis 6, where the world is filled with sin. It says uh, that the intense the thoughts, every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 6, verse 5. All right, that's after, call it 16, 1700 years, if you will, give or take. Um, and, 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 you know, and the earth is filled with sin. We are, now, it doesn't mean, we're, of course, that we are as evil as we possibly could be, but it, what it does mean is that everything we touch is corrupted. Every thought is corrupted. Every, every good deed we do is tainted. Right? It, it permeates our entire being. Right? Now, by God's grace and His common grace and His, and His hand of restraint, we are not as wicked as we could possibly be. I mean, if you think of the most wicked person in the world, you can always imagine they could do more wicked. Okay? You know... You know, you think of the list of the top three most wicked people in the world. Adolf Hitler usually comes to the top of the list. Well, he's accused of, of you know, being responsible for the death of six million Jews. Well, he could have killed six million and one. I mean, that would have been more wicked. He could have killed seven million. He could have killed 20 million people. You know, keep just going on. He could have been more and more wicked. It's only by God's restraint that he wasn't as wicked as he possibly could have been. So this image is broken. It's broken because of the fall that we looked at in Genesis 3. And that's what you see uh, going on in verse 3. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. Not in the likeness of God, but in the likeness of Adam. And what kind of likeness is that? It's a shattered image. It's a broken image. Uh, It's like a mirror that has been broken. It's supposed to reflect a perfect image, and now it's all distorted, and, and you know, it looks all over the place. It is a broken image that he passes on to his son, Seth. Keep your finger here and turn over to Romans 5. Because Paul brings this out in Romans 5, verses 12 and following. So in Romans 5... Looking at verse 12, Paul there says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
then drop down to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I mean, he's comparing here uh, Adam with Jesus. But Adam, what did he do? Well, he sinned. He brought death into the world and he passed sin on to his progeny. His one sin led to the condemnation of all men. His one trespass made many sinners. It was because of what Adam did that passes sin on to the rest of us, and now we are born with that guilt. We are born with that corruption that Adam received by way of the curse that is now passed on to us. And thus begins a cycle of sin and death that will culminate in the scene of judgment in chapter 6 with the flood. Now, we often like to say, what are the two things that are certain in life? Death and taxes, right? Yeah, so, and we say that because, well, we think death is just part of life, right? <laughs> things are born, things live, they grow, and then they die. Well, death was not a natural part of life. We were not made to die. We, were, we die because of sin. We die because of the curse, but we were not made to die. Death is, is seen in the Bible as an invader, as an intruder, as a usurper. It's called the last enemy that is defeated. We remember we saw that in the book of Revelation. The last enemy to defeat it is death. Who, what is the last thing that happens that is thrown into the lake of fire? Death is thrown into the lake of fire at the end when Jesus conquers. Because death is not a natural part of life. So here we have this cycle of sin and death. Man created in the image of God broke that image and now the narrative of redemptive history is carrying us along to the restoration and redemption of that broken image in Jesus Christ. So this line of Seth, what we're going to see here, is going to weave its way through the Old Testament. Okay, It's going to weave its way through the Old Testament and it's going to end when we get to Jesus Christ in the New Testament because after that point there's no more genealogies. You don't need any more genealogies because Jesus is here. But up until then, this, this is the line of promise, okay? This is what God promised in Genesis 3.15 being preserved and cared for and carried and protected all the way through, right? And then we're going to see this battle going forth, not just in Genesis, but throughout all of the biblical story, throughout all of history, this battle between the seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is trying to quash and kill and do away with the seed of the woman, but he cannot do that. He cannot gain the victory. Right? If you remember when we were in Revelation chapter 12 in the image of the dragon, right? The woman is Israel and she's getting ready to have birth to a son, which is Jesus. And the dragon's waiting, right? He's standing there waiting, waiting to consume the child when it comes out. And the child is born and is immediately caught up to heaven in, Gen in Revelation 12. In other words, the, the dragon was trying to kill the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman was victorious and was able to cast out the dragon from heaven. So we're going to see this line carried through the Old Testament. This line of Seth is... is uh, the line of promise. He is the, 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 the restoration that God is going to bring. Is gonna, he's going to bring it through this line. Seth was not the seed of the woman. He's not the ultimate seed of the woman. Noah is not the ultimate seed of the woman. But they are all kind of in that line, preserving it and bringing it through. All right, so that's the first five verses there. Of course, we see that, you know, the rest of it, it concludes like the rest of the chapter there. Uh, verses 4 and 5, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam that he lived were 930 years, and he died. So now let's look at verses 6 through 27. I'm not going to read all of these verses um, again, because the main structure through these verses, again, is in the form of a genealogy, which follows a very specific pattern. You have someone named A. A lived X years. He fathered B. 
Afterward, A lived Y years, and then all the days of A were X plus Y years, and he died. And that's just the formula that goes through all these verses. Now, we're not going to look, I'm going to skip verses 21 through 24. We're going to look at that separately. But everything else in here follows that pattern. A lived a certain number of years. He fathered someone named B. Then he lived Y more years. And then all his days were A and were X plus Y. And then he died. And you've got that repeated refrain. I think it's in there eight times, right? And he died, verse 5. And he died, verse 8. And he died, verse 11. And he died, verse 14. And he died, verse 17. And he died, verse 20. You don't see it in, in Enoch, and we'll talk about that. And he died, verse 27. And he died, verse 31. Eight times, and he died. And he died. And he died. Do you sense a theme going here? And he died. <laughs> and he died. The repeated refrain, and he died, marks the tragic legacy of the fall. Right? Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Right? You're seeing the wages of sin right here in Genesis 5. Adam sinned. What was Adam's legacy? Death. Because everyone born after him, including himself, died. And he died. And he died. And he died. One more time. Let's look in the back of the hymnal here. This time in the... Yeah. Yeah. Very different from today's obituaries. I would like to see Adam's obituary. You know, Adam lived 930 years. He was into fishing and golf. And <laughs> um, I want to look at Belgic Confession, Article 15. That's on page 879, which is also the number of years that... No, <laughs> Eight seventy nine in the back. This is Belgic Confession, Article fifteen. Talks about original sin, and this is again. This is Adam's legacy. So here we read uh, Article fifteen of the Belgic Confession. We believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature and a hereditary disease wherewith even infants in their mother's womb are infected, and which produces in man all sorts of sin, being in him as a root thereof, and therefore is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. Nor is it altogether abolished or wholly eradicated even by regeneration, since sin always issues forth from this woeful source as water from a fountain, Notwithstanding, it is not imputed to the children of God unto condemnation, but by his grace and mercy is forgiven them. Not that they should rest securely in sin, but that a sense of this corruption should make believers often to sigh. And that's not like, oh. I mean, that's like, oh, you know, groaning, okay? Desiring to be delivered from this body of death, as Paul will say in Romans 7. Wherefore, we reject the errors of the Pelagians who assert that sin proceeds only from imitation. The Pelagians, that was a group of people that um, Augustine, back in the 5th century, um, combated. And they taught that sin was basically, it's passed by imitation. Okay, so in other words, the Pelagians would thought that we were able, even us now are able not to sin if we choose not to. And Augustine said, no, no, you don't understand the corruption of mankind. Uh, it, it, is, it is in our souls, as, as the confession there says, it's like a hereditary disease that is passed from father to son uh, throughout all generations. And that's, again, that, that, uh, that original sin, as he says in the confession, says it's a root from which springs forth all the other sins in our life. It is the, it is the filthy, decaying root that produces the fruit of sin. And, it, and, it's, and it's, you see its effects here. right Now we're not told, except for one case here, we're not told of the lives of these people. right? We're just told that so-and-so was, lived so many years, he gave birth to so-and-so, he lived so many years after that, and then he died. But 
you know, clearly they are fallen individuals because they die and they die and they die. Now, a couple of things to note about this genealogy. Uh, three things. You have ten entries, which is similar to what the genealogy you'll see later in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11, is also ten entries. Another thing you'll notice here is the long lifespans of individuals. And the third thing you'll notice is the exception in the seventh generation of a man named Enoch. And we're going to look at those. Now, the fact that there are ten entries has led some to speculate that this is um, either symbolic, myth, or that the genealogy has gaps, okay? Because ten is such a perfect number, such a round number, um, that's kind of what they say. Now, a couple things to say about that. First, we need to understand what the purpose of the genealogies is. Are genealogies are the purpose of genealogies essentially is to map relationships and show connections. They are historical. In some cases in the Bible, the genealogies may contain gaps, but theologically, the genealogies again are meant to show connections and to eventually end and point in to Jesus. Because in the New Testament, we have two genealogies of Jesus. One uh, in Matthew's is. He's intent to show you how Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. So he starts with Abraham and works his way. And, and Matthew structures his genealogy in a particular way. He's got three sections. Each of them have 14 generations in each section. Uh, and then it comes down to Jesus. Now in Luke, he works backwards and shows how Jesus was born and then traces the genealogy all the way back to Adam. Okay, but again, the point is that these genealogies uh, end with Jesus. They theologically point to and lead to Jesus Christ. They are historical. This is not myth. Um, there's no, I mean, could there be gaps? Perhaps. I mean, we're not told. You know, but we're also told that there, you know, we're not told that there aren't any gaps. So, you know, it's like, you know, to say that there are gaps, you're, you would be reading something into the text that is not necessarily there. So it's best to kind of just read this as it is, um, to, to say that this is just a historical record that traces the lineage from Adam to Noah. That's the purpose of it, okay? That's the purpose of it. The fact that it may or may not have gaps, again, that's, that's all conjectural. That is speculation. Uh, we cannot say one way or the other. But another thing to note, as we said, is the long lifespans that you see here, okay? You've got, you know, 930 years, 912 years, 905 years, 910, 895, 962. Uh, Enoch is an exception at 365. Uh, then you have Methuselah, 969. And then Lamech, 777. A bit of an, an outlier there, but we'll talk about that. Again, these long lifespans have led some to speculate again that these genealogies are myth. So they'll say, well, hey, look at the, you know, the, the, the list of the Sumerian kings. And they show how these kings, uh, before a great cataclysmic flood, lived tens of thousands of years old. And then after this cataclysmic flood, their lifespans shrank a little bit. Uh, so they're saying, well, you know, they're just copying the, the, you know, the genealogies of these Sumerian king lists or what have you. Some will say that these, the, the ages here, uh, are, there's some kind of numerical uh, code in them or something. Uh, but whatever it is, it's like, it, it would, if there is, it's lost to us at this point because we have no reference to, to point here. I think the long lifespans here imply that we were created to live forever. Again, remember, death was not natural to life, right? Death was not natural to life. Death is an invader. We were created to live with God forever. Now, we were not created to live forever in this earthly body. This earthly body would have been translated into a glorified body, which cannot die. But again, these long lifespans, I think, were indicative of the fact that death was not meant to be here. That death is, again, an invader into this world. 
Now, there's a clear difference in the lifespans before and after the flood. Uh, if you just want to like, flip over a few pages to Genesis 11... I mean, Noah was the last guy to, to live a real long time. I think he lived 950 years, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but then you see, but I mean, if you look at the, the genealogy in chapter 11, verses 10 and following, notice the drop-off, okay? 600 years, 438 years, 433 years, you know, 464 years, 209 years. Uh, 200, sorry, 239 years, 239 years again, 230 years, then what is that, 130, 48, you know, so the, 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 the lifespans begin to shrink, they begin to, to shrink, and, you know, part of that could be said, well, you know, God said that he would limit man's time on earth to 120 years or something like that, you know, so you've got these long lifespans before the flood, shorter lifespans shrinking, really shrinking lifespans, after the flood. Again, we're not told explicitly, but I think you can make a strong case for that there was probably something pre-flood in the climate, something pre-flood in the environment of the world then that you know, drastically changed, and guess what? After the flood, right? The flood was a cataclysmic event. It was a world-altering event that, that you know, brought havoc and destruction to the entire world. I mean, it's even believed that before the flood that you had perhaps a, like a one unified uh, continent, a Pangaea, if you will, that was then broke apart after the flood, and then you had the, you know, what you call the continental drift after that fact. The point is, whatever is happening before the flood is different after the flood, thus leading to the shorter lifespans. And I don't see any reason, again, not to take these years as other than what they are. There's nothing in the word year that would suggest that, well, you know, they're, they're calculating time differently. Um, a year, it's the word shana, just means a year. Uh, so I, I hold these to be actual lifespans. Methuselah did live 969 years. Died in the year of the flood, if you calculate the, the numbers out like that. So again... I think we should both uh, resist the temptation to dismiss this genealogy or to focus too much on it. You know, again, the purpose of the genealogy is meant to show this connection between Adam and Noah. It's also meant to show the connection of the fall, how the legacy of the fall here, you see, and he died, and he died, and he died multiple times. Uh, I have no reason, again, no reason to believe that there are gaps in this genealogy, no reason to believe that these numbers for the years are anything than what you see there. So you've got a span of time between Adam and the flood of 16 and a half hundred years, 1,656 years if you add all the years together up to the point of the flood. Now, in this genealogy, you see one minor, or major, <laughs> one major exception we see an exception in the person of Enoch, whose name means dedicated, verses 21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now here's where we're going to consider the genealogy of Cain that we see at the end of chapter 4 with the genealogy of Seth, which is all of chapter 5. And you're going to see these two lines. You see one, the genealogy of Cain descends into sin. It just falls further and further into sin. It starts with Cain who kills his brother and then ends with Lamech, the seventh from Cain, who brags about killing somebody. Whereas Cain was fearful about what man would do, Lamech was like, bring it on. I don't care. You know, if Cain is, is going to be killed, you know, if someone who treats Cain as sevenfold, I'm 77-fold. You know, he's just boastful and arrogant and, and, and haughty. He was a polygamist. He was a murderer. 
So you've got this one line, the line of Cain, which descends into sin. You've got the other, which seems to preserve true worship. Right At the end of chapter 4, it says, With Seth, uh, at that time, then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then in the seventh from Seth is Enoch, who exemplifies this, this true worship of God. So righteous was Enoch that he didn't die. <laughs> he was translated. He was like Elijah. He was, he was like, God's like, you need to come to me now. We're going we're gonna to take you now. You have, in the case of the genealogy of Cain, you have technology and civilization being built. Cities are built. Technology is, is growing. Uh, in, the, in the genealogy of, of Seth, you don't really see anything like that. Right? And again, now this I think shows how God can work, again, providentially and through common grace to bring great technological advancements in the world through unbelieving people. Consider how the Romans had brought um, you know, political innovation, uh, the, you know, their construction of roads and their civilization, how the Greeks brought philosophy and the languages and the arts, all these things, again, uh, uh, artifacts of common grace, how God works even through unbelievers to produce good, though it's not a saving kind of good, but what you see preserved in this genealogy of Seth is worship. One genealogy, the genealogy of Cain, is going to die out in the flood. The genealogy of Seth is preserved through the flood. And again, you have this contrast in the seventh of each generation. So, you, so from Cain to Lamech is seven generations, and from Seth to Enoch is seven generations. Um, so you've got these seventh generations here. One is Lamech, who was a polygamist. You've got Enoch, who was a godly man and walked with God. And that, that phrase, walked with God, uh, expresses an ongoing intimacy with God. He had a, a relationship with God in the sense that he walked with him. It was what Adam should have had in the garden when he walked with God in the cool of the day. And you see this again in Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now we're told a little bit more about Enoch in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith. So how did Enoch walk with God? He did so by faith. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. That's how we know he didn't die because the author of Hebrews confirms that. And he was not found. Because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. That's an impressive statement. That's a very impressive statement. And then verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it wasn't that Enoch did anything that pleased God. He didn't earn any kind of favor with God. He had faith in God. And that's what pleased God. And God was so pleased with Enoch, he took him. He took him so that he would not see death. It's an amazing, an amazing statement there. So even in this dark period, the grace of God shines in some. And you have this person, Enoch, who, who shows and kind of gives you a little bit of a glimpse of what it could have been had Adam had not fallen. He didn't die. He walked with God, had an intimate relationship with God, and God was pleased with him. And that's how it should have been. <laughs> that's how it should have been, but it wasn't because, again, of sin. Well, finally, we're going to see another glimmer of hope in verses 25 to 32. When Methuselah lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. I think I meant to say from 28 on, but anyway. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. 
Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It's interesting, another, just another connection between these genealogies. They all are, in a sense, you know, they're um, linear. They show, you know, father, son, father, son, father, son. And then at the end, you see multiple sons, right? So at the end of the, of the genealogy of Cain, it ends with Lamech who gives birth, and they mention three of his sons, uh, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. This genealogy ends with Noah, and it mentions his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. At the end of the genealogy in chapter 11, Terah, and you see his three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So it's like, it's, for some reason, it ends, and then he kind of branches off and shows these multiple uh, generations at the end. I only mention that because it's a thing that links them all. But you've got this glimmer of hope here in this, in this man named Noah. Now again, before we say anything about Noah, notice that in the genealogy of Cain, there is a man named Lamech. In the genealogy of Seth, there's a man named Lamech. In both genealogies, the Lamech speaks, <laughs> right? What does Lamech in Cain's genealogy says? He calls his two wives to him and says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What does the other Lamech say? Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, my son, shall bring us relief or rest or, or you know, rest from, from the work uh, and from the painful toil of our hands. So you have a Lamech who speaks. Cain's Lamech speaks words of pride and boastfulness. Seth's Lamech speaks words of hope in this man named Noach. You've got to say it that way. Noach. That's the Hebrew way of saying it. In fact, I think, I, let's see if everyone, let's just all say it. One, two, three. Noach. Get the going there, okay? Noach. The word that means rest is nacham. So you've got that, that, that kind of same root word there. It's derived from the word for rest. Not shalom, that's peace. This is the word for rest, nacham. You remember God cursed the ground. Right back in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, he curses the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Farmers, is it, hard, is it easy to grow crops? Do you have to work hard at it? <laughs> Is it toilsome work? Do you sweat <laughs> by the sweat of your brow? Yes. And here Lamech's like, Noah, my son, Noah, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from the work and the painful toil of our hands. Hope is in this child. Hope that he would bring rest from not just the pain of growing food and toiling, from, but from the pain of the sin that's in this world. You know, all the hopes in the sense of Lamech are, are put on his son Noah. Perhaps now this is the seed of the woman. Unfortunately, it is not. It is not the seed of the woman. But Noah does, in a sense, provide a form of rest. Right? Because in his generation, God is going to bring judgment to the world for all the sin that has come upon it. And Noah is going to be the one who's going to preserve uh, the, the human race, if you will, on the ark along with the, the animals that are on there. And, you know, Lord willing, if we get to go down to Kentucky, we'll see the ark exhibit and, and everything there. But Noah is the one who brings rest after the flood, after the judgment. And, and in a sense, he's a new Adam and he starts over again. It's sort of like a, a do-over, if you will. But he is not the seed of the woman. He is another Adam, but he is not the last Adam. He will preserve the human race through judgment, but he will not be the one that takes upon himself the judgment of our sins. So this passage here shows us the slow march of redemptive history that leads from Adam to Noah. 
It shows how God is preserving His, his seed. How God is even now working His plan of redemption. It doesn't, the plan doesn't start when Jesus is born. The plan starts when He promises the seed of the woman. That's when the plan starts. And it's working its way through the pages of Scripture. This line of Seth, sort of like a, a scarlet thread, if you will. I'm, that's not mine. That's not original to me. But you've got this, this idea of this hope being woven throughout the pages of the Old Testament here. But we, like Seth, are fallen. We're born with that original sin. We're born with that hereditary disease of Adam. We have that fallen image. We are in Adam's likeness. And we, we too sigh and groan like the earth is sighing and groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of men, for Christ to come and bring renewal to all things. But we have that in this kind of groaning and sighing that we have in these decaying bodies that are also going to, you know, when they go through our genealogy, guess what's going to say at the end of it? And he died. And she died. <laughs> right? You know, it just, it's just, again, that legacy of sin and death. But we have a hope, right? Because if you're in Christ, you've got that already and not yet in you. You've got a part that's already created, newly created, and is ready for the kingdom. And it's just waiting for Christ to return so that then the part of us that's not ready will be made ready. Or will be given to you ready. If you're raised up out of the ground, you have a new body. If you're alive, it'll change in the twinkling of an eye. But we are in this, until then, we are in this fallen image in the likeness of Adam. And not only that, our salvation doesn't come from technology. Again, look at Cain's line. Cain's line is very technologically advanced. Civil, you know, cities and, and agriculture and metallurgy and, and the arts and all these things, but you're not saved through that. You're not saved through philosophy. You're not saved through technology. You're not saved through through advancements in these areas. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ who is not only the last Adam, but he's also a better Noah who does give us rest. Who does give us true and lasting rest in him. So I'm done here. Next time, Lord willing, as I said, uh, May 7th, uh, we will look at the first eight verses of chapter 6.